Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression, and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds, one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Martin Holtman, Associate Professor in Science, Technology, and Environmental Studies at the Department of Technology Management and Economics at Chalmers University in Sweden. Dr. Holtman's research focuses on the influence of extremist views such as sexism and far-right nationalism on climate change denial. His latest book with Paul Poulet, Ecological Masculinities, chronicles the political landscape that has shaped the industrial breadwinner and eco-modern archetypes of masculinity, both fueled by misogyny, and their proposed ecological masculinity as a response that centers science, fact, and reason, and a respect for nature. Our conversation with Dr. Holtman will explore ways in which a response to addressing our climate crisis and, in particular, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic will require that we, as a society, address how we socialize boys and men if we are to save ourselves and our planet from mutual and guaranteed destruction. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. So I want to delve into your background and your journey of how you became interested in learning about this topic of masculinity and its intersection with climate change and climate activism. I have a background in energy politics and energy history. And uh, there you could see the um, very different numbers of men and women in the politics and as engineers in the energy sector. That was kind of obvious for me when research within energy. But then um, lately I've become more and more interested in various forms of masculinities and not only binary categories of men and women but also how uh, men and women and individuals overall can be enact various forms of individual behavior and values and value systems. And then especially different forms of masculinities came to interest me a lot. Did you have any formal exposure to feminism? Definitely. Um, when I was on my first year as a PhD student, I became uh, responsible for gender and technology course at my university, uh, Linköping University. I was supervised uh, by uh, Professor Ulf Mellström there, uh, who is a professor in masculinity studies. So uh, that was kind of my first PhD and uh, research exposure. Um, and then in my master program. I also read uh, gender theory. Your latest book, Ecological Masculinities, you talk about the ways in which it chronicles the political landscape and you posit three masculinities, some of which you've already written about in your scholarly research. One of them is this term industrial breadwinner. The second one is eco-modern male and then you posit a solution, the ecological masculinities. Let's start with the industrial breadwinner. How do you define that person and how is that person created, that archetype? In the more kind of popular read, there's a lot of talk about toxic masculinities. 
So um, male behavior uh, that is bad against both women and the planet. I think that kind of concept has gone viral in some sense and the people can many ways relate to that kind of as a popular read concept, toxic, toxic masculinity. We can say that industrial breadwinner masculinities is a bit similar, but for me, it's more of an academic concept and it's more a concept that doesn't, is more about to explain how this behavior has become so popular and is enacted by so many men in the world and without saying that it is, this is just totally bad. So it's more kind of an explanatory concept, industrial breadwinner masculinity, than toxic masculinity. So I came to this concept and through empirical analysis of climate change denial. So um, I found it very curious that in Sweden, uh, around 2008, 2009, it was a quite small group that were against all climate science results. And that group was also very homogeneous. So it was uh, older men uh, with a background within industry and some right-wing politicians was also in that group. And I became kind of interested, why are these men kind of denying the results from climate science? Why is this so? And then I came across some more survey studies that has been done in the US by Riley Dunlap and R. McWright, uh, who also saw this group of men um, as kind of a, a, a group that doesn't want to take into account climate science at all. But I became more interested in that group because it seemed that the characteristic of that group had before being that they were kind of, um, either they were stupid, that they didn't take into the science into account, or that they only acted on behalf of vested interests, like the oil companies or those kind of big corporations or think tanks. But I thought that both those two explanations didn't really fit the empirics that I saw in Sweden. Even though the group was more was homogeneous, older men in Sweden as well, they didn't seem to have neither connection to vested interest in that much as it was maybe in the US. And they didn't uh, neither kind of um, say no to all science. It was only the climate science that they were skeptical or that they denied. And this was a bit... Curious to me because then it seemed to me that it, it's much more of an ideological issue for these men and also an identity issue. So this is exactly what industrial breadwinner masculinities is, I think. Of course, it is connected to vested interests. Uh, many men who work within oil industry or that type of, of industrial modern industries uh, are in this group. But it's also kind of ideology that um, you think of the nature as something that you can just grab and use for, um, for everything that you need uh, to, to create um, 
wealth and, and money for humans. So it connects back to this idea that came about in the 17th century with Francis Bacon and the Industrial Revolution. This concept you explore in depth in your paper, A Green Fatwa, Climate Change as a Threat to the Masculinity of Industrial Modernity. And in it, you highlight what I call tactics that are being used by these climate change deniers to convince the public that their narrative is valuable and credible. So I want to go through each of these one by one. So the first one is disregarded voices. I actually have likened it to, for the listeners who know, who are familiar with my podcast, I'm always trying to make connections of abuse and abuse of power in all the different mm. realms and to make mm. connections so that when we see it in one space, whether it's in our public mm. arena, we can make those connections and recognize and identify it in our personal lives mm. and pers mm. possibly in our personal relationships mm. and vice versa. And so I'd like to use the term gaslighting with regard to the disregarded voice and, uh, voices, and I want to hear your thoughts about how accurate that is and if you could also describe how those disregarded voices play out. Mm. Um, that could be a good anal analogy to it. Um, another one could be when Donald Trump say that he's going to drain the swamp. A description of from coming from an extremely powerful person, but that he claims still that he's the the David against Goliath. So he the, the create that idea that even though. You have a lot of influence, a lot of power, a lot of money. You are the one that is kind of outside of the of the playing field, or you are the, the smaller people's voice. So in that sense, they are trying to, to describe themselves as David against Goliath or some other person who is kind of outside of the, the elites. Uh, and say that I'm against the elite. They are trying to create that kind of in a paradoxical way because at the same time they use their titles and their backgrounds to kind of claim that position. I see. And so in some ways that speaks to also the second tactic, which in your paper you describe as rational versus religious. And I, I call that flipping the narrative. So it's, you know, sort of an extension of gaslighting where you're trying to minimize or erase or hide the actual person who is in power, who is trying to oppress in, in, in the case of abusers and domestic violence. But in this case, they're using disinformation tactics. So can you describe what those disinformation tactics are that climate skeptics use to cast climate research as climatism and how religion is used as a tactic? So here, maybe it's valuable to understand also the, the culture aspects here of Sweden. So I think in Sweden, it's even more so prominent maybe to if you call somebody that she or he is um, religious or that he base his or her value judgments or judgments on you know, religious grounds, that is kind of not being understood as reliable or not being understood as scientific or, or true in, in some broader sense. So I think they, here they are trying to 
also claim the position of the rationality, the the, the rational science person, uh, and say that everybody else is the one who's kind of um, making up stories or creating ideas that is not true. Of course, this is also used in the US. I've seen research there uh, and Europe, but uh, I think maybe it, it's also dependent on, on the cultural setting in which those claims are made. So you're saying that because religion or religious ideology and religious symbolism is considered less credible, that calling someone a term like eco-fundamentalist basically discredits any kind of argument they have, even if that argument is actually based on science and reason. So just that yeah. label um, yeah. casts that person in a negative light. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the third tactic in your paper, which is the demise of industrialization, and it, you talk about how this getting back to the you know concept of the ind- industrial breadwinner, I I liken this to casting the perpetrator as the victim, kind of like how in the U.S. a lot of people who are in working class sectors, especially that are fossil fuel dependent, like mine workers, mm-hmm. they cast themselves as a victim when we're trying to move to a green economy and there are opportunities for them to actually transition to that in terms of training and funding, but they mm. you know, refuse. Um, so can mm. you talk mm. about that and how the demise mm. of industrialization impacts this archetype? Yeah, I agree with you in, in your analysis there. Um, I also think it works on a kind of ideological, in an ideological way. They are trying to describe that if we take the climate science for real, um, industrial modernization uh, will need to be stopped. So uh, in that sense, they, they use the really strong idea, not least in Sweden, the, the progress uh, is connected to economic growth and it's connected to more and more industrial output. So that argument is kind of used in a way to downplay the, the actual possibility of taking this climate science for real. So, so this is kind of an argument that they use saying that, okay, so if we then take this knowledge for real from the climate science, then what? Then will the society even be final or that that will not work anyhow? So it's kind of an, an argument to put the, the society that we have um, up against the climate science results of what is, we need to change within the society. Am I hearing you right when you're saying that the, the tactic is our current gendered structures where the man is the breadwinner and we have these very defined gender roles? Yeah. And, and we have these very defined gender roles that if we posit that against a future that's uncertain, that may disrupt these gender roles for a lot of people whose identity is tied to is women to to being taken care of financially and otherwise, and for the man to be the breadwinner, that that uncertainty of this other possibility is a threat. 
Yeah, and and not only uncertainty, I would say it's also outright their claim that that's so dangerous that such a change in societal structures, uh, in their view, uh, goes against the biology of both sexes. So it's it's also kind of for them at least connected to an idea of of that different roles is based upon a certain forms of idea of biology. So, so in that sense, those type of changes of the structures in the society, of the gender roles and the, uh, how we think and act as humans, um, that, that is not even possible since they claim it is not possible since that the structures that we have are kind of what they think are the the best ones or the only one the only one possible even so in a way it's almost like they're saying you can't be fully realized as a person as who you are if we move to this other economy to this other belief system yeah yeah for them it is definitely so I would say. okay and then the climate skeptics also you write in your the same paper that they describe themselves as marginalized, banned, and oppressed, but at the same time, they're also anti-intellectualism, right? And, and they use terms like elite and fancy people to, to create an image of climate change proponents as an exclusive group. So kind of the way, like you mentioned earlier, Donald Trump does that to, mm. to widen his base and strengthen his base. They're casting those uh, who are climate activists as sort of up there and other in a negative way. And so I call this casting themselves, uh, the perpetrator, <laughs> as the hero, yeah. uh, because they're kind of like leading, the, fighting against this enemy. What are some of the, the examples in which they do this in the media or in their tactics, some very tangible examples that they do this? I first want to say that this... After I wrote this paper, um, I've been reading up much, even much, much more masculinity studies. And um, of course, this way of kind of understanding yourself as the victim is very important to understand, I think, in relationship to masculinities, um, not least in the movements of so-called incels or angry white men that Kimmel has written about or voting behaviors in various parts of the, of the US. I think that this image of being the one that has lost out or being the one that has even been suppressed, I think is, is extremely powerful construction that has been used not least the last couple of years in the US. For the listeners in our community who haven't heard of the term incel, could you define what that is? Incel, yes. Uh, it's, uh, incels are those men that are involuntary celibate. Uh, men who claim themselves to not being attractive to women uh, and do that, create that into an identity of being an outcast or being kind of somebody that nobody likes. And they 
create, they have communities around these. And uh, there's been some of the mass shootings of lately connected to this phenomena. And, and mass shootings overall are, as we know, almost only men. So. so you were saying before I asked you about incel, to define incel, is the ways in which, and we, I was asking the question earlier around making themselves the hero against uh, anti-intellectualism. That is done, for example, claiming that the researchers are only doing this because they want to earn money and they want to be famous. Um, and these men, they are doing it because of kind of uh, an inner guidance of doing the correct thing in the world. So that's kind of one way of portraying the enemy as uh, even if it's a uh, uh, scientist, uh, the enemy is greedy and the enemy is uh, someone who only want to be in this for power and uh, they themselves describe them as they are the honest ones and they are the ones who are doing this for the sake of the whole humanity. So that's, that's one way to do it um, that, that we have seen in the data. Just to follow up, in terms of tangible, concrete examples, in your Green Fatwa paper, you give the you you cite Carolyn Merchant, the environmental historian, and who's the author of *The Death of Nature*. And in her book, she talks about Francis Bacon's *Utopia: The New Atlantis*. And I was hoping that you could explain the way in which that book and that story was used to illustrate this tactic? To give an ex historical example, you can talk about the ideas that came into the center of the societies around the Industrial Revolution in the 17th century. Among else, Caroline Merchant being written about and analyzing uh, Francis Bacon's ideas of how nature should only be something out there for humans to use, as in mining or as in um, natural science um, experiments. But he also um, did the same thing in between men and women as he did between man and nature. So if nature was uh, something that man could use uh, for its own, his own purpose, Francis Bacon also described uh, women as a thing that men could use and be above. And in that sense, an ecofeminist read of the kind of roots for the industrial breadwinner ideology is this hierarchization of humans over nature, in which nature is only a thing for humans to grab and use, but also in the same similar logic, um, men are placed above women. And that has also been part of a performance ideology that justifies men's abuse against women, as well as men's abuse against nature. I'm glad you brought up the term ecofeminism, because one of the struggles that I had while I was reading your work was understanding where it falls into this category of ecofeminism. I mean, obviously, masculinity studies and ecofeminism has been around for many decades. 
how does your work differ? How do you differentiate it from what's already been established knowledge in in that space? We uh, are both hugely grateful for all the work that different ecofeminists have been doing for 40, 50 years now. We could not have been doing our work without them. So um, the inspiration from environment historians like Colin Merchant, um, political scientists and sociologists like uh, Susan Buckingham and Sherilyn McGregor, um, as well as political ecologists like Semago Jonsson, and also more kind of binary ecofeminists like Wanda Nashiva and others in that, that tradition has been extremely important for us both to kind of to see empirical analysis coming out of that tradition, uh, but also to that type of perspective to, to understand how these intersections work, both historically and, and today. I think that or an, uh, our, the most important inspiration uh, regarding science theory uh, is the more recent work in the tradition of a material feminism and uh, the ecofeminists uh, working along that kind of tradition. So uh, researchers like Stacey Alaimo and others uh, who are bringing in, in a, in a very simplified way, bringing in materiality again in the analysis and not only dealing with these kind of issues as social constructions. So there we start. So that's kind of one important inspiration for us. What we do add, I've been told by my ecofeminist colleagues, is the specific focus on various forms of masculinities. What we do then is to not start being stuck in this binary idea of men and women, which quite a lot of research still is, at least when we do survey work and more quantitative analysis, which are really important as well. But if we if you start from a more material feminist point and also queer ecology, uh, you recognize that humans are more on a, on a scale. And uh, if, you, if you think humans in that way, it's more interesting to see what various groups have in common uh, and try to kind of put forward analysis regarding that instead of thinking along only binary terms. So that I've been told we bring into the whole conversation regarding ecofeminism, a strong focus on masculinities and a focus also on um, forms of masculinities, as well as uh, the possibilities of change. So understanding also that humans can be part of these categories, um, but also that it, it, these categories can be more understood as practices, praxis or practices, um, so that as human, you can be an industrial breadwinner when you do your mining and you, uh, at the mining corporation, at your job. 
And then as a human, you might come home and do permaculture work in your garden, and you might work for gender equality in a voluntary organization. So it's also important that we do not put humans into these categories too easy, but to understand them also as analytical categories, even though they are also embodied by persons. I can give also examples of these kind of categories, but it's maybe more interesting also to see that people can change from one category to another. So would it be accurate to say that ecofeminism is a sort of the umbrella framework for understanding and explaining the connection between the exploitation and domination of the natural world and the subordination and oppression of women? And then your work provides layers and nuance of understanding how people, mainly men that you study, fall into different aspects of masculinity or navigate through those fluid identities and how they are formed, how they are informed and shaped. And then, as you said, how they can be influenced to transform. Yeah, we understand our work as totally pro-feminist or feminist work, definitely under the umbrella of ecofeminism or ecofeminisms, because there are different forms of ecofeminism also. We are both grateful for all the work that ecofeminists has been doing and are doing, and we are part of that work with them. Okay, great. So let's delve into another archetype that you described, which is the eco-modern man. And you have a whole paper that explores this archetype in Arnold Schwarzenegger, and how he was constructed to be an environmental hero. So very briefly, can you talk about the background for how he became deliberately constructed to be this hero and by whom and to whose benefit? In similar way, as I was kind of curious about this homogeneous group of men um, denying climate change in Sweden 2008, I became curious about how could Arnold Schwarzenegger be kind of uplifted as an environmental hero in Sweden by all countries, uh, in which I thought that kind of his background with um, being, he had been accused of abuse against women, he has been um, divorced and he has not been kind of gender equal protagonist and uh, his environmental record has been very much so-and-so for quite a long time, uh, up until when he became governor. I was very surprised that he, uh, of all, was uh, thought of to be an environmental hero in Sweden. So that was kind of, why is it so? It, was, it did not fit with the image of an environmental hero here in Sweden for me. But I came to realize that he actually kind of had a couple of ideas and values and practices connected to him as a person, but also his politics from California that was really prominent in the Swedish political landscape as well. And I would say dominant in the Swedish political landscape. And that is the idea that you should handle emissions at the end of the pipe, so to speak. So you should handle the emissions when they get 
out of the smokestack or when they get out of the the automobile um, when they have been the energy has been burned so to speak, you should take care of the emissions and that's kind of the problem there the problem is there the problem is not before it's it's not problem with the energy source it's probably comes out and uh, since honest water Schwarzenegger had ideas of solutions to this uh, fuel cells and, and hydrogen very much tied into and in a similar way was uplifting this kind of end of pipe technical solutions to problems that was also dominating the Swedish political landscape in form of in forms of what's being called ecological um, modernization as an ideology. What this focus on the emissions and technofixes does is that it also hides the need to change the systems behind those technofixes. So changing from natural gas or fossil gas, which is the biggest energy source in California, to renewables or to not using that much energy at all was hidden behind the solutions, the technical solutions of fuel cells and hydrogen. And this is something, a way to approach many of the environmental problems that we are dealing with today uh, is an approach that is very much on top of the political agenda in many countries around the world. Sweden included. So it was in some sense then a perfect fit in between a man who could uh, promote uh, a technical solution when with no emissions from pipe of the automobile with a country in which this, this type of solutions were on top of the political agenda as well. So it was a perfect match there in some sense, but a curious one. I was actually surprised to learn about Schwarzenegger's connection with the Hummer and its sort of marketing um, ascendance. (laughs) Because for me, like it was perfect as you described how the two of them both symbolized strength and virility and also domination because when Mm. i've driven in the highway before and i've seen hummers there's a sense of intimidation i feel like i'm going to be hit or i worry about the person who's behind the wheel and what kind of sort of mindset they have if they're going to be prone to road rage (laughs) so so that i thought was perfect um you use the term which i want you to define how Arnold Schwarzenegger represented in his eco-modern masculinity, he represented the shift of hegemonic masculinity embedded in environmental policy. So what is hegemonic masculinity? Yeah, so it's a concept termed by Raywin Connell in the early 1990s. Basically, it is a way to describe the dominant forms of being a man in a society. But hegemonic masculinity is a bit more complicated than that in many ways. It's also an ideal form that people are striving towards, but in that sense, it kind of also dominates ideas of what is kind of the best way to behave in society. And um, 
when I analyze this eco-modern masculinities, I understood it as a shift away from this industrial breadwinner masculinities in which you kind of ignored or denied these environmental challenges like climate change, for example, and you actually took them into account, uh, but you continue to kind of um, conservate the, the structures in which men are thought to be kind of on, t- on top of that patriarchy pyramid in which society is structured. So in that sense, I thought the change from one form of hegemonic masculinity, the industrial breadwinner one, to this other eco-modern masculinity uh, was visible in the way in which Arnold Schwarzenegger was kind of uplifted as an environmental hero. This was for Sweden, and uh, I thought it also had kind of um, overflow in other countries as well during this period of time. I do think that with the latest development on the political landscape, with Bolsonaro, Trump, Scott Morrison, Putin and others, the industrial breadwinner masculinities might have been a kind of a comeback. We don't know what will happen in a year or so or, or with the COVID-19, but but yeah, maybe it's another demonic masculinity right now than when I discussed it. I just want to translate that for our listeners. The, the concept of hegemonic masculinity defines a certain type of masculinity and patriarchal order, social gender order, but it also justifies it and gets everybody who's in that order invested in keeping it in place. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, very much so. Okay. And so when you were talking about the Arnold Schwarzenegger FCH, the fuel cell hydrogen being used as a mask, why are we talking about emissions instead of talking about the production of fossil fuels? That reminded me of a a, uh, framework that a lot of feminists have been debating about for several decades now, very, very prominently. And I just covered this in a recent interview, which is commercial sexual exploitation, prostitution. The Nordic model or the equality model is about harm prevention. And people who are for using the term, legitimizing the term sex worker is about harm reduction. And so we think, why do we need to have reduction? We could just prevent it to begin with. And so it's kind of Mm -hmm. hiding the real sort of um, regressive ideas in a progressive light. Would you say that that's an accurate analogy? Yeah, very much so. Even the term kind of liberal feminism could be connected to this eco-modern masculinity in in the similar way as um, being equal men and women in an oil company doesn't make the oil company any more sustainable, maybe gender equal, but, but it doesn't change the system and the structure that is destructive for the whole society. We talked about the role of religion and how that's used in protecting their men's desire to protect their economic status um, as an indicator of power. Can you talk about the role of identity in constructing these forms of masculinity? Yeah, at least for me, it was very obvious how much identity played a role here. 
when the youth-led uh, climate justice movement kind of really got going in 2018 and 2019. I know that the Sunrise Movement and other kind of youth-led movements, climate justice movement in the in the U.S. has been doing this for a long time. Uh, but I think it was it became even more obvious in 2018, 2019, when they really became visible and um, they also kind of called out this type of industrial breadwinner masculinities, the telling them that you have known this for 40 years, but you haven't done anything or you come to us for hope, but you are the ones that actually need change. Um, and the men in this group became either, they realized, okay, I need to change. I need to do something. I have the power. Or they turned very aggressively um, towards the, the youth-led climate movement. So in Sweden, we have seen threats against Greta Thunberg, for example, personal threats. Um, but we have also seen the kind of uh, language that has been used against the leaders in the, in the U.S., I saw that as an example, I think BBC, they uh, filmed a kind of a helpline and they screened that helpline for men who get offended by younger women who knows more than you do on climate change. Um, <laughs> so, so I think this is really an, an obvious example, I think, on what we were talking about. Wait, so you're saying that there was a, it was like a parody about the climate change deniers. Okay. And how was that received? I've just seen kind of laughters and I've just seen, but I, I don't know how it was received by those who were the target group. I don't know if they... <laughs> we have to check in Reddit to see if they're know. making nasty remarks behind yeah. the scenes. <laughs> I just know that I got a couple of emails as well by angry men. I'm not target that much, actually, if I compare with my women colleagues, not at all. Uh, I think it, it's because I'm, I appear as a man. Um, but uh, yes, they have sent me emails as well. And this is not unusual. I've been studying the history of two prominent women energy politicians in Sweden, and they had death threats and they had poo sent home to them and one of them even had a small cottage on her garden um, burnt down. So it's, uh, it's very common that women who are knowledgeable and that are making a statement within the area of energy and, and environment, that they get threats. So it's, it's um, another example is Rachel Carson, um, who people might not remember as so much of an eco-feminist, but actually when she wrote The Silent Spring and some other books, she was also threatened by this category of industrial breadwinner uh, males. So it's a, it's a pattern. So you, you know, just in summary, you, you're, the research that you work on makes the connection between certain predictors of climate change denial and that includes political orientation and identification, like you said, be, be belonging to a certain group of people, and that those people who tend to be deniers are 
white men who are right wing and more likely to accept and justify and want to protect existing social structures and traditional lifestyles. How do we address it, getting to the solutions that you offer? If we know this, if we know that it's a cultural, mainly a cultural kind of motivation, what can we do as individuals and in terms of policy? One important aspect to really recognize is that research uh, now show that the youth-led movement by young women, uh, the climate justice movement, has been really successful, not least in um, talking to older men with more breadwinner masculinity, industrial breadwinner masculinities. They recognize that um, to be able to talk to their children and to be able to kind of have a connection even to their children, they need to uh, get knowledgeable about, about these issues. So... Um, that's one thing, being as straightforward as the youth-led climate justice movement has been uh, with Greta Thunberg and others. It's success story in the sense that they have actually been able to touch the hearts of the industrial breadwinner masculinities. So they should keep on doing what they are doing is uh, definitely the analysis of that. Then we have been working uh, with an education in Sweden called Ecological Masculinities. We are in that education bringing together groups of men, around 15 to 20 of them, to talk about abuse against women and abuse against nature. First, they talk in... Uh, what's called a smaller room in which they share experiences and uh, and reactions to uh, knowledge about uh, male abuse towards women and and male abuse towards nature. So they get questions like, what do you think when you hear about that so and so many women are raped every year? And from that little room, they then also go out to a, a, what's called a bigger room in which issues of ideology and politics are discussed. And we are doing this education uh, in, for four, it's eight meetings with these men. And we go through different uh, questions, all of these meetings. And um, I think one key here is to have trust among a group of men a group of men who discuss issues of importance for them, both in, on individual level as well as on political level. And these type of kind of settings we have known through masculinity studies are not so common for men, not least elder men is not so used to and not so trained in talking about issues that are really important for them. So this is also something that we can learn from and that we can spread and that we can use this type of education in which men gather and talk about kind of important issues under the supervision of, of a leader or of a, of a pedagogical trained uh, person. Then I also think we need to have uh, laws and norms changed. So norms are kind of laws but laws that you don't get 
punished for, as you know, in some sense. I think one interesting law that has been put in place in Sweden is a law in which there's a law about sexual consent um, put in place in Sweden. And I think that's extremely important and very interesting uh, kind of example of how you can actually think about consent in between two humans, but also maybe we could expand that to think about consent towards nature. Um, and there are ideas about this type of consent towards in between humans and nature. And that is a movement called the rights of nature. So in that kind of movement, they want to uplift nature to have the rights not to be extracted, not to be abused and not to be polluted. So for example, there's a river in New Zealand, uh, the river of Fanganui, uh, which now got the right to thrive and the right to be clean. And um, that is now governed by both a uh, group of indigenous people and a group of Pake, the, the colonizers of New Zealand. Um, and they have a kind of they have a, a new type of governance form in which uh, the rights of the river is protected. And I can see overlaps here in which we understand and that we recognize the rights and the, the intrinsic values of um, uh, subjects. And subjects here can be both humans and non-human subjects. And I think the concept of consent is uh, that is and being put into laws are interesting to think with and to act with also. So there's a an American historian at George Washington University, Ibram Kendi. He's author of Stamped from the Beginning, A Definitive Guide of Racism in America and How to Be an Anti-Racist, amongst other books. And he addresses the concept of privilege and and how people who are of a particular group, and in this case, he talks about race, so white folks in America, how because of policy that creates a system where they benefit from their privilege, mm -hmm. they then continue to want to protect their privilege and maintain those policies. And he posits that education and love and even the concept of empathy isn't enough, that you mm -hmm. really need to sort of start with the policy and then cultural change will follow. So what kind of policies do you think we can implement? Because a lot of what you've just suggested presupposes that the good in people, mm -hmm. but the good also has an instinct for self-preservation. And so that tension is going to exist unless there's policy that foreshadows that transformation, that individual change. Very important. Um, and the rights of this river in New Zealand that I talked about has a history of over 150 years of struggle. So um, the indigenous people struggle for uh, this river to be understood as a part of their kind of um, holistic world view um, is at least for me, an example that some kind of struggle needs to kind of come before. You need to recognize what you also did there uh, regarding privilege and regarding unequal structures and, and unequal societies in so many ways. Um, 
it's very, very true that you need to find ways of also kind of un- both understand that that struggle for this type of rights is much needed, but also that the forms of those struggles you need to be strategic with and so that you don't strengthen the system that you want to change. Because I think that we can also see historical examples of uh, that when you're trying to change something with some certain tools or with some certain tactics, it only kind of strengthens the system that you want to change overall. For most of the world, we've been under a lockdown for several weeks now, if not longer, under COVID-19. And you would think that this would be an opportunity because some have said that it equalizes the risk of people having infections or, or being at risk of death from this disease. And yet we don't see an increase in, I don't know if it's like activism, but amongst the target population that you're studying, Have you seen any change in their behavior or mindset or willingness to embrace policy around climate activism because of this global pandemic? At least in Europe, there is a continuation in the the work with the the so-called New Green Deal that is going through the European Parliament. And there was a kind of large petition um, with names from both industry researchers and politicians and the energy and environmental ministers from quite many countries in Europe put forward that which said that okay we need to we need much more even more than ever to have a new green deal put in place in Europe because what we're in right now is transformative weeks and months and years and we know that, Climate crisis was here before the COVID-19 and will be with us after. Um, so I see that, at least, as an example of these issues coming together in, in, in times that we're in. I've also quite a lot of researchers uh, putting out uh, uh, calls for political action. The one that I saw latest was hundred and. 72, I think, researchers from the Netherlands that wanted to have strong policies regarding emission cuts and fossil fuels in the ground and those kind of things. And also famous UK economist Kate Rayworth, who's been, she's been famous for the donut economy. Amsterdam will now follow the lead of her research group when they will rebuild the economy for Amsterdam. That's another example. And then I do think also that we cannot kind of step back from the fact that what's the economic recession is also telling us beyond that the emission levels come down and that uh, the air is uh, much better in the bigger cities. It also shows the interdependence on oil and also how the the geopolitics of oil and it exposes actually the power connected to that and I think we that we can bring with us also so that we in some sense can know what we we can how we can handle this but then also coming back to your question on 
quality and justice. I think even before the COVID-19, at least in Europe, it was a lot of discussion regarding a just transition, so kind of a fair transition. And this also brings me back to the masculinities issues because many of the people who are going to get unemployed in the large industries and the fossil fuel dependent industries are men. And they are men connected very much in, to industrial breadwinner masculinities. And I think this is a group of men that we need to be aware of and also need to find ways to act with and deal with uh, during these circumstances. I think otherwise they will probably take to arms. They will, if not take to arms, they will vote for leaders that will just destroy our planet even more. So we need to be aware of those maybe political consequences and the possibilities of actually acting on them. Right. And we didn't even, in our conversation, we haven't even touched upon the connection between fossil fuel industry, obviously, and militarism. And then those folks that you're talking about, the industrial breadwinner and their proclivity towards being xenoseptic and anti-immigration, right? And so that, that could, I mean, we just saw today Trump has closed all immigration to the U.S. as one of his responses to COVID-19. And so there are yeah. people who are in power are entrenching their power even more. So thank you so much. We've come to the point in our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that I call the engendered questionnaire that I've adapted from inside the actor's studio. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Our planet. What gives you hope? The youth-led climate justice movement, uh, as well as those older men being affected by it. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? We need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. We need to put in place laws that care for the planet. We need to create norms, not least among men, who take knowledge around the, the environmental challenges for real, as well as are willing to act with more wider, broader, and care for non-humans and humans alike. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you. Great question. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.